Father, um, as we come to listen to you, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, our king and our friend. Father, uh, I have worked hard to prepare for this morning. And I thank you for the blessings that I have already received in doing so. But I recognize completely that unless you come now, then it will just be words that have no significance. So Holy Spirit, come to us now. Come so that we might be able to hear your voice. And that by the end, we will have something of the vision of Bartimaeus. Something of the love shown by Mary. Something of the wisdom shown by Martha. Something of the life given to Lazarus. And something of the gratitude that Jesus himself showed towards you, our Heavenly Father. And we ask this in his great and transforming name. Amen. So, if I could have my first uh, slide up, I want to talk to you uh, today about uh, Lent and liminality. Here we go. Why couldn't he choose a word that we know what it means? (laughs) Good question. Well, liminality actually means threshold, basically. It comes from a Latin word, limen, which means uh, the threshold. And it indicates sort of a boundary of change and uh, a, a time of transition. We don't use the word threshold very much every day, do we? We might use it when we get married. We talk about, well, perhaps this is old-fashioned now, but carrying our wife across the threshold. Remember that, our generation? Did you do it? Um, We might talk about threshold when you're welcoming in a new year up in Scotland. You cross the threshold and you carry some coal across the threshold. You might, uh, in teaching certainly, threshold is an important word because it's applying for the next step up in salary and you have to cross the threshold. And in all those examples, it's talking about something new and exciting that brings about a new joy perhaps or a new purpose. Well, I'd like to suggest that Lent is a liminal space. We are standing on the threshold of the coming of the reign of Jesus Christ. Um, Next Sunday, the king is going to arrive. We're going to remember that, aren't we? We're going to remember Jesus arriving at Jerusalem as king. And beyond that, there is the prospect of the kingdom being ushered in with a throne that we wouldn't have expected in the form of a cross. How are we going to prepare um, for that coming kingdom and for living under that reign? What have you been doing to uh, prepare and how is that going to make you different? 
Lent for me this year has been long. It started early. Um, the picture on the left is uh, last summer, and I'd just cycled to the top of a mountain, and I felt on top of the world. And just six months later, I'm reduced to being a little old man in a wheelchair. And it wasn't so much as about uh, giving things up voluntarily. They have been taken away from me for double the length of Lent, more or less. So I've had to give up lots of things that are very dear to me, not only cycling and running and playing squash and all those sorts of things, but just my very independence, not being able to walk or drive or do the things that I normally do. But I've been struck very forcefully by something I read this last week, that we learn best by example and by direct experience. Because there are real limits to the adequacy of verbal instruction. And I felt that this Lent. I felt, wow, perhaps the Lord has needed to take these things away from me to teach me lessons that I otherwise wouldn't have learnt. And so Alan and Gillian asked early, earlier, what have you been doing, taking up as part of Lent? And what I've tried to do as well is to uh, pray through every day the Lord's Prayer and really, really mean it. May your kingdom come. May your kingdom come and really pray that. And so that's been bound up for me over the last uh, period of Lent as preparation for the kingdom. And, and I hope that's what we're going to see together now. Jesus himself. Oh, next. That, enough about me. What about you? What about you? Uh, and I don't just mean you, Ruth, sorry. <laughs> um, perhaps, perhaps you've been coming to the church here for, for quite some time and, and you sense you've had a really good welcome and that you sense that there's uh, a, a family atmosphere and you've been made to feel at home. But perhaps you also sense that there, there is something more. There is something more than just being part of a type of club and that you're standing at the threshold of coming to live under God's reign. And what about us all together as uh, a church? Um, I think it was last week, uh, Christelle and I were invited to Dave and Janet Lee's house, and they said, don't you get the sense that the whole church is on the threshold of something really exciting. He said, yes, yes we do. But we also had that sense um, seven years ago when we arrived. So wouldn't it be wonderful if as we prepare for the celebration of the coming of God's kingdom in real power on Easter day, that we cross that threshold 
fully together. Jesus himself uh, saw his whole ministry, if you like, as being on the threshold. Just grab your Bibles and have a look at Mark chapter 1. And what's he say? I've just been saying that as we draw to the end of Lent, we're aware that the kingdom is near. The kingdom is near. What does Jesus say? The very first thing as he bursts on to the scene uh, in the beginning of his Galilean ministry. What does he actually say? The kingdom of heaven is near, he says. And he tells us two things to do. He tells us two things to do. If you find the verse, it's about verse 15. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. And as he goes through Galilee teaching and telling stories and telling parables and sitting people down and telling them about it, he tells them what repentance is and what belief is. But if the kingdom of heaven was near three years ago, as it were, how near it is now as we come to this period of Passion Sunday this week, Palm Sunday next week, and Easter Sunday the week after. And what Jesus does, do you remember what I said about we learn by Example and by direct experience because there are real limits to the adequacy of verbal instruction. What Jesus does just before Palm Sunday is to give us three stories of direct experience. Here they are. Just a reminder of that. We learn by direct experience. Here are the three examples. And they all come in each gospel, just before Palm Sunday. Just before the account of Palm Sunday. So we're going to look briefly together at the story of Bartimaeus, the story of Lazarus that we read today, and the story of Zacchaeus. And I'm going to suggest to you that Bartimaeus is a story which shows us, gives us direct experience of what repentance is. That Lazarus is going to show us a direct example of what belief is. And Zacchaeus is going to show us what happens when repentance and belief come together. And what happens when salvation comes to this house. So in each case, okay, get yourselves comfortable. In each case, we're going to ask who's involved, what happens, and what conclusions we can draw for ourselves. So the first story is Bartimaeus. Who's involved? Bartimaeus. His name is really significant for a number of reasons. The first reason is that Bartimaeus was probably a a known name from the Greek uh, stories of Socrates and Bartimaeus. Don't worry about this, but it was a conversation that took place in ancient Greek literature between Socrates and Bartimaeus about how the world became to be created and who was God. And this story is about someone who sees the reality of who the creator of this universe is. There's two other possibilities for the name Bartimaeus. Timae is uh, a Greek word and means honor. 
Bar means son. So Bartimaeus could mean son of honour. Perhaps that's what he becomes by the end of the story. But probably a more likely reason for his name is that the Aramaic Tima means filth. So he was called, not a very nice thing to be called, son of filth. Possibly that was a a label put on him because he was an outcast. He was blind. He was forced to beg. He wasn't allowed into the wealthy society that was prevalent in Jericho. And yet what happens? This man, Bartimaeus, he knows that Jesus is coming. And he shouts out to him with absolute conviction that this is what he's got to do. He shouts out at him, Son of David, have mercy on me. What? Okay, so what? Son of David recognizes something about this man Jesus, this itinerant preacher Jesus. It means that Bartimaeus was probably one of the first people publicly to say who Jesus was, that he was the son of David. He was the expected Messiah King. What vision for a blind man. And then he shouts out, have mercy on me. Why do you need mercy? Well, you need mercy when things are wrong, don't you? There was the matter of his sight. Surely, yes, have mercy on me. But perhaps it's not too far-fetched to say that Bartimaeus recognized that there was something that needed to be put right in his life. And that's what repentance is all about. So, um, if we come to what this means for us, um, if I can bring these forward. Okay, it's, I've called this a kairos moment. A ki- kairos is another word for time. Uh, chronos is the sort of time that keeps going on and on and on and doesn't stop. Kairos is a, a moment where on that line of time, we actually take the time to stop and consider and do something different before we go on. Get that? Like that? I'm proud of these drawings. Okay. Okay. Um, this is a kairos moment for Bartimaeus. Do you know the word repentance? We tend to associate it, I don't know whether you do, but I do, with saying sorry for something that we've done wrong. And often that's something we might have quite enjoyed. And so the word repentance seems to get a bit of a bad press in a sense. So instead of thinking it just like that, it, it, it has that in it, but think of it as repentance. Repentance. Thinking. Thinking again. Because that's what Bartimaeus does. He may have observed through his ears 
things that uh, he was hearing about this man Jesus. And he may have reflected upon it. And he may have discussed it with his friends by the roadside. And he may have planned what he was going to do when Jesus walked by in his head. And he may have given an account to himself initially of what he was going to do. Because what did he do? When Jesus called him, he leapt up, he threw aside his cloak, which was very significant because that's where he got his money. Yep, his cloak was like his livelihood to him. It was like laid out so people could put the money in to help him. And he threw it off. He threw off anything that would hinder him repenting properly and he followed Jesus. So he was ready to act. So I think in this story, for us, this Bartimaeus story in Mark 10, have a look at it. Repentance is like a Kairos moment. Lent is like a Kairos moment for us. And are we ready to rethink our lives and observe what it is to live in the kingdom and reflect upon it and discuss it with our friends? And then plan and account and act to be different so that we live under God's reign. Second story is Mary, Martha and Lazarus. Who's involved in the story? Well, what's the story about? This is a story about belief. It's a story about belief. Who's involved in the story? Mary, Martha, Lazarus only gets a walk-on part, really. But what a walk-on part it was. What a walk-on part it was. What do we know about Mary? What did you notice as Tom read it? She got a sort of, it's this Mary I'm on about right at the beginning. Mary, the one who showed real love to Jesus by pouring perfume on him and wiping his feet with her hair. She showed love. And do you know the word believe actually comes probably from an old Germanic word. It's connected to lieben, to love, and geliebt, loved. And that gives us our word belief. And so there is an element of great love in belief. What else? Who else is involved in the story? Martha. I reckon Martha gets a bad press. Because we often think of her as the practical one where Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet learning everything and Martha's the one in the kitchen. Have you thought that about Martha? Have you heard that in sermons about Martha? Well, I was staggered rereading this chapter, even as Tom was saying it. How amazingly wise uh, Martha was. What discernment she showed. What understanding she showed. What belief she showed. It says, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who was to come. Martha reminds me of my wife. But um, what we find here is that Martha's belief is about to go on to a whole new level. What happens in this story? Well, basically, Lazarus dies. 
There is a death in this story. And did you notice as we read through the, the real sense of sadness from the people who said, well, he could save this blind man in Jericho just down the road. Why, why couldn't he save Lazarus? What's the use of this belief if in the end it doesn't really change anything and Lazarus dies? Did you feel that? Do you feel that sometimes? What's the use of all this Christianity malarkey if it doesn't really change anything? But you know, the more I read this story, the more I think there's actually another death that is more there even than Lazarus' death. Were you a bit puzzled as Tom read it out where, about Jesus' answer when they said, you know, Lazarus, your friend is sick and he sets out to go towards Jerusalem. And they're saying, well, why are you doing that? And he says, well, we've got to do it while the day is light. What's that mean? And it seems to me that Jesus knows that he is going to die. He said so, doesn't he? He knows. He's setting himself intentionally that he's going to die. Why? Because he understands from his reading of the Old Testament that in order for there to be a real difference that conquers death for all time, that there has to be an atoning sacrifice. And he realizes that he is that atoning sacrifice. And he is setting himself resolutely to Jerusalem to die. But I think there's something even more amazing here. Is that he sees in the death of his friend Lazarus an opportunity for him Jesus, to believe fully what God, his his Father, is going to do. So when he stands by the grave and they have said, you can't roll the stone away, it will stink. There will be the smell of corruption. Rotten body rotting in the grave. It will be a foul smell. Perhaps going through Jesus' mind was Psalm 16. Read this at home. Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11. It will blow your mind. Because perhaps at this point, Jesus is reading that psalm which says, But you, Father God, will not leave his soul in hell. You will not leave your Holy One to see corruption. I'm only hearing it in the words of the Messiah. That's why I'm struggling to remember it. But thou didst not leave his soul in hell, nor didst thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. And there he is, Jesus, standing by the grave, knowing that his death is just around the corner, weeping over the tragedy of his own friend's death. 
but saying to his father, I believe that you will not suffer your Holy One. This as a first example, Lazarus, so that everyone might believe. But you will not suffer me as I lay down my life for the sins of the world. You will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. But that I am the resurrection and the life. That's what's so amazing about this story. That's why it's a story about belief. Do you notice that when he says it to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? This is what belief is all about. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. And her belief is moved on to another plane. It will in all its fullness just a few weeks later. But here at the door of the grave, we're getting a foretaste of it. And as the stone is rolled away, before Lazarus emerges, before he walks on, Jesus is already saying thank you because there is no smell. It's amazing, isn't it? And he says, thank you, Father, because you have heard my prayers. That's what belief is all about. Third story, story of Zacchaeus. Who's involved? Zacchaeus. What do we know about him? He's short. He's a good tree climber. Uh, he lives in Jericho. He's filthy rich because he's a senior tax collector. What happens in the story? Zacchaeus would have heard about Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was an infamous blind man at the gates of Jer- Jericho where Zacchaeus worked. He'd have heard it, all those stories. And he wants, he wants to get in on this action as well. What happens? Jesus gets to the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. And I'd quite like to come and have a celebratory meal with you. What happens then? Zacchaeus gives back everything he owed. And more than everything he owed, he sort of restores money fourfold to the people he'd taken it from illegitimately. And he gets accepted into the community. He's given an identity as a son of Abraham. He is accepted. What have we got to learn? I forgot to tell you what we learned from Lazarus. Liminal moment. It's about going down into the grave and re-emerging to a new identity. Do you see that? Um, a descent into the heart of darkness. Interestingly, this was on the, on the internet. It's a descent into the heart of darkness. Jesus did that for us. And a re-new story as Jesus emerges triumphant from the grave. What does... The um, Zacchaeus story teaches. Well, I think this is a kingdom moment. This is a kingdom moment. In my journal, spiritual journal, uh, I have a variety of symbols that I use. And I, whenever I'm sort of lapsing into prayer, I, do, I write a P and put a box around it. So I know that I focus on prayer. And R stands for resolve. So if ever I say, right, I'm going to do this, I put an R in a thing. And I think this is what happens with Zacchaeus. 
You won't find this bit on the internet because it's just in my journal. But um, what the kingdom is about is turning P, our prayer, into reality and resolve. So what, how does Zacchaeus do that? He does it by giving, living, and growing. He gives things back. He, um, he rest- it's like the restoration of social justice. When the kingdom comes, what do we see as a result? There is social justice. Zacchaeus returns the money and he returns it more, more fully. He, he can get to live with his neighbours on the basis of forgiveness because he goes and engages with them and asks for their forgiveness and does it in a practical way. And he grows into an identity uh, as a disciple of Jesus and is given that uh, special place. And those things, giving so that we can find social justice, living in acts of mutual forgiveness, and growing as disciples are ways that remind us of how we can live under God's reign and how we can prepare for that reign as we come towards the end of Lent. Does that remind you of anything? So, summing up, what do we learn from Lent as a liminal time, a time of preparation for the coming of God's kingdom? It's a time for repentance. A time to stop and rethink and plan and account and act so that we're ready for God's reign. It's a time to believe that God has done this for us. So he has, as it were, descended into the heart of darkness in death for us so that we can be raised to newness of life. He is the resurrection and the life for us. But as we still live here and now, we find, don't we, that there are terrible things that we have to face and that we have things taken away from us and we suffer and we are ill and we face death and there is trouble. I was thinking of this as we sang the words of what a friend we have in Jesus. Have you trials and temptations? Yep. Is there trouble anywhere? Yep. Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered, with a load of care. Yep. Precious Jesus, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share, even to the point of taking on himself the death that we deserve? Can we find a friend so faithful Who will all our sorrows share? Precious Jesus, still our refuge. 
Take it to the Lord in prayer. And we can believe because of this that we can rise again with him to newness of life because he is the resurrection and the life. So finally, as we prepare for the kingdom, we need to remember that repentance and belief produce fruit. They produce the fruit of social justice. They produce the fruit of living in harmony and mutual forgiveness with each other. And they produce a sense of belonging and identity that allows us to grow and then in turn to grow disciples. I mentioned right at the beginning that I've um, been praying the Lord's Prayer. And I noticed this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name for what you have done. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then when that happens, when we're prepared for his kingdom to come, what will happen? Give us today our daily bread. Not more, not less, but our daily bread. So there's a sense of social justice. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us so that we are living in mutual forgiveness and harmony. Don't lead us into temptation. But when we do face temptations and trials of every kind, let's recognize that God is disciplining us as sons and he will lead us through. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours. And that will lead us inevitably into praise. And at the end of this service, we're going to sing a great hymn of praise. The praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King, the King of creation. Ponder anew during this period of Lent what the Almighty can do who with his love does befriend us. Amen.